Welcome to Hacking the Self, integrating East and West, ancient wisdom with modern medicine. We'll explore holistic approaches to hacking your physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking the self. Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. I've got a fascinating conversation for you today with Peter Schoestet H., who is an Anglo-Scandinavian philosopher based in the UK. Peter's work is primarily in the area of philosophy of mind and metaphysics. He specializes in the thought of Whitehead, Nietzsche, and Schopenhauer with special regard to panpsychism and altered states of sentience. Peter received his uh, bachelor's degree and his master's degree in continental philosophy from the University of Warwick, where he was awarded a first-class distinction for his dissertation on Kant and Schelling in relation to intellectual intuition. And he has since lectured for six years as a philosophy professor in London went on to complete his PhD in philosophy at Exeter University. He's now teaching philosophy modules and writing skills and is based in Cornwall, England. I had a fascinating conversation with Peter. We talked mostly about the work of Friedrich Nietzsche, and I've become very interested in taking a closer look at Nietzsche He's a philosopher who I was interested in in high school, a little bit in college, but really even just kind of late high school. And I've revisited his work because Jordan Peterson, whose work I've been following very closely and as I've spoken about on this podcast, Peterson is very interested in the writings of Nietzsche. And in particular, I'm, I'm very interested in Carl Jung, which and what Jung has to say about religion and the psychology of religion. And you know, I've gotten into Jung before Peterson, even through people like Joseph Campbell, Douglas Brooks, and other great scholars of religion, but those two in particular. And Jung was an avid reader of Nietzsche and actually wrote quite a lengthy book on even just part of Thus Spake Zarathustra, one of Nietzsche's works. So my interest in speaking to Peter about Nietzsche was definitely to work through some of my own ideas and, and misconceptions and to learn from Peter about Nietzsche, but specifically why Nietzsche is considered and talked about by some as an early psychologist and sort of a, a precursor to the ideas of someone like Jung. I was also very interested in having a, a scholar of Nietzsche like Peter explain to me exactly what Nietzsche's diagnosis of Western philosophy and Western society was and, and why so many people said that Nietzsche was remarkable in his ability to predict what was to happen in the 20th century and how much of what he says even confronts us today in terms of the problems that we face or things that Nietzsche predicted. So 
I had some ideas of this because I'd certainly read the work of Nietzsche. Like I said in the past, I was familiar with his genealogy of morals and what he thought a bit about Christianity and how Christianity changed Western morals and really gave us what he called a slave morality, which he thought was not something, as you could guess by the name, not something that was desirable. But Nietzsche is also someone who's deeply misunderstood. And I should say as a preface to the show, because we touched on this, but didn't get into it fully. Part of the bad name that Nietzsche has is really largely due to the fact that his sister, when Nietzsche later in his life went into a state of psychosis and then died, his sister was the one who had access to all of his writings. And his sister very much took his writings and selectively released and adapted certain writings to later fit with the national socialist agenda that was promoted by Adolf Hitler. And so Nietzsche got this very bad reputation post-World War II in Western academic circles because he was seen as you know, sort of a justification for national socialism or even perhaps part of the cause. And Walter Kaufman, who is one of the most famous Nietzsche scholars of the 20th century, probably the most, who is a philosophy professor at Princeton, who wrote a very famous book on Nietzsche that I reference in our talk. It's, um, it's called Nietzsche, Philosopher, Psychologist, Antichrist. Sort of his work was to revive the profile of Nietzsche. And Peter clearly understood that a lot better than me and helped me to contextualize that. And so perhaps he, I got the sense that Peter perhaps didn't totally take issue with uh, even Kaufman's portrayal of Nietzsche, but Peter certainly said how, you know, Nietzsche was misrepresented in his spoke against anti-Semitism and that his views were certainly used to justify political and social movements that he clearly did not disapprove clearly did not approve of. But I, I give that background to say perhaps why you might have a bad impression of Nietzsche. But Nietzsche is someone who I've come to appreciate again. I mean, I liked him when I first read him, but as I, as I read his work again, I can see the appeal in his writings. I can see what makes him so radical and revolutionary. And I can see why he's someone really worth reading. I think in an age where people are so, I mean, I, I keep coming to, back to this word tribal. I know we're tribal by nature and that's how we're designed by evolution. And so perhaps we shouldn't expect differently. And I shouldn't say it as a bad thing because it has many good things. But in some ways, I think now that we are so interconnected, we're going to have to learn to either outgrow our tribalism or at least expand our notion of tribalism to include the human race as a whole. And I think what divides us so much and what really can sort of detract us or at least forment any particular divisions that we have between tribes is, is ideologies. And much has been made of religion. And I think religion, especially some religions more than others, can create particular schisms in between groups of people. But it's not just religion, you know. It is all forms of ideologies. And Peter and I touch on this conversation how Marxism in many ways represents a sort of religion. But Marxism is an ideology. Capitalism is an ideology. And ideologies are very seductive, right? And I think we should make a distinction here. You clearly need a philosophy of life. You know, there's a great quote by Anton Chekhov, and I'm probably going to mess it up off the top of my head here, but 
Chekhov says something along the lines of to go through life without a clear philosophy of life is no life at all. You know, it's a burden and a nightmare. So we need a set of principles. You know, that's not what I'm making the argument against. But what an ideology does is it reduces the vast complexity of life and of human beings. And it reduces them to one simple variable or a very narrow set of variables, right? So Freud says everything about sex. Marx says everything's about money. Foucault says everything's about power. And in some ways, perhaps you could say Nietzsche does that too with the will to power. But I think Nietzsche is is also exhorting us to take a radical reevaluation on on what we believe. And so if nothing else, if you don't buy into the will to power, I don't read Nietzsche and think, okay, now that's it. Now that's my worldview at all. But it's a reminder to question things. And this is what we need more of. We don't have enough inquiry. What we have are debates, their performances. There are people saying, look, I know, I already know the answer. And how can I score my points against you and show how my side is right? And this is, I think, the big problem now with universities. Universities, which are an absolute cornerstone of democracies. You know, democracies require a functional educational system to turn people into critical thinkers. And that's not, unfortunately, what large swaths of our universities are doing now. You know, they're turning people into ideologues because this is what ideologies teach you to do is they teach you to reduce things to one principle or one set of principles. It's like life's not that simple. You know, it's yeah, it's about sex. Yeah, it's about money. Yeah, it's about power. But it's about more than that. And people are now being inculcated with particular sets of ideologies instead of being taught to think for themselves. And I say this with all due respect for people who I think are well-intentioned and want to make a difference in the world. You know, university students are particularly susceptible what the developmental psychologist Jean Piaget referred to as the messianic stage where, you know, they're really obsessed with changing the world. And that's a wonderful thing, but people are still really young. And I think they should be focusing first on how to change themselves before they change the world. And they should give up on the idea that, you know, you're not going to graduate from university and figure out how the world works. It's just not going to happen. It's too complicated. You should be left with more questions than answers. And you should walk away with an appreciation of our past, which includes the absolute is filled with horror tales of what happens when people are seduced by ideologies. So the goal of university is not to turn you into a social justice warrior or to turn you into any other kind of ideologue. I don't care, left wing, right wing, whatever wing, you know, ideologies lead us to authoritarianism, towards totalitarianism. And right now, that's what the world is seeing. It's seeing a rise of authoritarianism and totalitarianism. And it's happening across the political spectrum. We're seeing it on the right in terms of things like the phenomenon of Trump and Brexit. We're seeing it on the left with people cracking down on free speech on college campuses. And I think that's what really danger scares me the most, more than anything, because universities should play such a vital role. And if they start to malfunction, democracy is going to very quickly deteriorate even more than it already has. It's one thing for the central political system not to work. People are bitching about their politicians in every country on earth across time. I suspect that will be a timeless tradition. But the rest of society 
has to function from the bottom up. And if we lose the right to have free speech, if people start becoming ideologically possessed, we know where that leads us from history. And it's nowhere good. It is nowhere good. And so I think Nietzsche has real relevance to us in this particular day and age. I think back to my own education in university when I was a major in Africana studies at Brown, in particular, studying a lot of African-American history, but also the ideas of a lot of these thinkers. You know, frankly, Marx had a big influence on sociology and a lot of the different departments that I took. I was reading a lot of Noam Chomsky, who is, you know, provides a very attractive framework for looking at the world. And I think people should read Chomsky. I think he's worth reading, but you need to understand where he has points and you need to understand why he gives people such a skewed perspective and why it's limited too. And you should read Foucault, but you should also understand why it's way too reductionist as well. And I think of my roommate, one of my college housemates, Patrick Terrell. And Pat, this episode is dedicated to you because I think back to our conversations. Pat was very into Nietzsche. He was a philosophy major who was very into Nietzsche and always told me to read Nietzsche. And I'll never forget, Pat came along to one of my classes and he actually took a class for a whole semester to his credit to really appreciate the perspective in Africana studies. And uh, it was only one class, but he had a criticism which I didn't totally see because I think I'd taken the um, lot of the ideology that was being promoted in those type of classes. And I won't say the department because I don't view that my education, it wasn't a factory for a particular ideology the way that I see or what at least I hear of a lot of today. And in fact, I think a lot of the film students, the modern culture and media students at Brown who got a lot more Foucault and a lot of Derrida had a much heavier ideological dose. But I think I'd taken on some of those viewpoints and I didn't fully appreciate the degree to which it was pushing a narrative instead of promoting a truly open critical discussion. And Pat called that out. And I didn't totally see what Pat was saying. And today I see, looking back on it, how he was right. And I see how the types of ideas that I was learning and the grip hold that certain ideological schools had in certain departments and universities have been taken and played out now over the past 13 years since I graduated from college and the consequences of that on a larger cultural scale. And so I want you to know that, Pat, I've been thinking of you and appreciated what you had to say. And I think this is what people need right now is to just do everything you can to let go of your particular, just hold, you need a way of looking at the world, but hold it more lightly, hold it more lightly. Mindfulness practice teaches you to do that. Psychedelics can help people to do that. Get out of your own social group. You know, we're surrounding ourselves by people who, who are saying this, have the same belief systems as us. And it's reinforcing the way that we think we look at the world as correct and that there's only one way to look at the world. You know, read Jonathan Haidt, The Righteous Mind. Realize how your viewpoints are very largely predicted by your temperament and what we think are political or moral worldviews rationally constructed are actually largely irrational or emotion, you know, emotions. They're predetermined and predicted very much by the temperament that we inherit. And so I think there needs, in conclusion, I think there needs to be a lot more interest in inquiry and a lot less interest in debate. I think we need to be a lot more interested in living the questions and be a lot less 
impatient to jump to the conclusions. And we're all guilty of that and myself included, but I'm doing my best to deprogram myself and travel helps to do that. Mindfulness can help to do that. Psychedelics can help to do that. But if you're only hanging out with everyone from your yoga, your psychedelic community, who's always the same thing, be wary of patting yourself on the back and telling yourself how open-minded you are. I think we're all prone to fit into tribes and that's how we're programmed, but be skeptical. Interrogate your own beliefs rigorously. Interrogate the beliefs of not only your opponents, but your allies and the people in your own tribe rigorously and evenly and impartially. And I think that's how we're going to begin to have an honest, thoughtful debate. That's how we can honestly get back to some measure of sanity, I hope, as a culture. Because culture is something that is it's tyrannical and it's oppressive, sure, but it's also, it's what gives order and coherence to society. It's what we've inherited from the past. And there's a lot that's corrupt about it that has to be changed, but there's a lot of wisdom in there, you know, from people from the past. And so I think culture doesn't need to be overthrown. It needs to be reinvigorated. So we do that by, I think, recognizing that there's some value in other points of view outside of our own. And I think Nietzsche is someone who really gets to the heart of Western civilization. And regardless of, I think, where your ancestors came from, you know, before they came to America, you know, obviously that is so many of the the ideas of Western philosophy are central and have shaped our worldview now. And Nietzsche really gets to the heart of it. So I'd encourage you to to take a look at him. I think starting with Peter might have a different view, but The Genealogy of Morals seems to be a great book to start with. So with that said, I thank you for listening. And now I give you my conversation with Peter Schirstedt H. All right, Peter. So we are finally recording after figuring out the enigma of recording over the internet. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be speaking with you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thank you for joining us. So I've given folks a little bit of a sense of your background in the introduction, but I'd like to start, since we're going to be talking quite a bit about Nietzsche today, by asking you first about what originally drew you to the ideas of Frederick Nietzsche? Well, I mean, I was introduced to Nietzsche in, um, as, a, as an undergraduate at the age of 18 at university. And um, I suppose it was just what drew me immediately to him was the fact that he was so radical. I mean, first of all, when I, when, when I started reading him, I thought, well, this is obviously can't be right, can it? <laughs> because he immediately questions all of one's moral assumptions, ethical assumptions for a start, as well as many other assumptions. First of all, there was just this sort of rejection uh, to him, thinking, no, that can't be right. But when, when I started looking into the reasons he, he gives, and then combining that with a bit of a 20th century metaethics as well, I realized that actually his views were more plausible than the opposing views. And I suppose that got me started. And then uh, later on in life, after my degrees, I um, started studying Schopenhauer, who was his predecessor in a sense. I mean, Nietzsche was a big fan of Schopenhauer uh, to start with and became friends with Wagner on that account, partly. But then Nietzsche came to reject Schopenhauer, ostensibly at least. Um, I started reading Schopenhauer and I realized that a lot of Nietzsche's uh, moral, moral theory came from Schopenhauer, although he differed substantially later on. And not only, not only the content, but also the way in which Nietzsche expresses himself. Um, it's just a very powerful, powerful mode of writing, um, hyperbole, uh, which sort of draws one in. I mean, he's 
obviously he's got a skill for drawing in the reader. And when he says, for example, we, he's sort of thinking, yeah, he's talking about me, I'm part of that. You know, so he can easily, easily attract um, young young males, I think, especially. But not not only that, I mean, he's, of course, to understand the 20th, a lot of Western 20th century history, you have to realize um, Nietzsche's influence therein, uh, not only in terms of uh, wars, but also in terms of uh, many movements we have today, sometimes quite contrary movements. But um, the whole notion of power structures and whatever really comes from him. So uh, gen- generally, I mean, he's just, you know, in himself, very exciting, very interesting, very powerful, breaks one out, breaks the reader out of his or her mold. And then historically, very interesting as well. I mean, his influence on philosophy, as I say, but also history. Yeah, so I suppose that's why I'm drawn to him. And also, I should say, lastly, it's my view that he didn't, he was working on a kind of, though he says he was against systems, I believe he was working on a system of the world power before he went mad. And I think that's very interesting as well, to sort of continue that program he had. So yeah, a number of reasons why I, why I was drawn to him, really. One thing I remember about Nietzsche that really struck me was the fact that his approach is so different. You know, you're reading people like Descartes and sort of that whole tradition onwards. I mean, you know, even earlier, Plato and Aristotle were into this, but especially from Descartes onwards, it's this hyper analytical mode, right? That you have to construct your arguments very carefully. And it's, you know, it's sort of like the beginnings of the scientific method that Descartes and Bacon and some of those people uh, pioneered. And then Nietzsche comes along and sort of dispenses with all of that. Yeah. I heard someone say recently, I think it was Jordan Peterson, who said he's seemingly the actually no, I think it maybe it was Walter Kaufman, you know, for for our listeners who don't know Walter Kaufman's kind of, you know, the most famous Nietzsche scholar of the twentieth century. And I think he said Nietzsche's he's seemingly the most easy person to read, but he's actually the most difficult to really get at what he's saying. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, much like the guitar, the easiest instrument to play, to learn to play, but the hardest to master, some people say. Um, I think the truth of that is found in the varying interpretations of Nietzsche um, you get. And you'll always get an article saying how Nietzsche has been misinterpreted. But then, of course, that itself is usually considered a misinterpretation. And then that's uh, complicated by the fact that Nietzsche sort of uh, advocated perspectivism. In other words, there's no objective truth, but, uh, but merely matters of perspective. Yeah, so you have to study, not only study him, I think you need to study, like I say before, said before, um, Schopenhauer to really understand the, the sort of fundamentals of his thought. And to understand Schopenhauer, you have to read Kant. <laughs> Schopenhauer was a Kantian, except in the ethical sense. And to understand Kant, you know, helps to know a bit of Leibniz and so on. So really, it's you can't just read Nietzsche and understand him fully. You have to understand the background, philosophical background, but also, of course, the historical background. You know, the fact that he was sort of uh, raised in what was Prussia and, and so on, you know, so um, very complicated and it takes decades to fully grasp him. And even then, you probably, you know, it's, it's very likely you've got it all wrong, if there can be a wrongness to it, as I said. Right. <laughs> well, I want to pick up on one thing you mentioned. You had talked about him sort of the impact that he was to have on history later. Mm-hmm. And one thing that Walter Kaufman wrote in his his really famous book on Nietzsche, which is Nietzsche, philosopher, psychologist, antichrist. He said this line, Nietzsche was prophetic in the sense that he divined what the mass of his generation was blind to. He anticipated problems that today stare us in the face. What do you think Kaufman meant by that? Well, I mean, Nietzsche did did foresee 
great wars coming. And the funny thing is, of course, that this is sort of a almost self-fulfilling prophecy because his own thoughts partly instigated those wars, so it's partly. I mean, Kaufman's known as well for um, making Nietzsche acceptable after the Second World War because after the Second World War, Nietzsche was closely associated with uh, National Socialism. You know, he was not a nationalist nor a socialist and spoke against anti-Semites. <laughs> but nonetheless, um, the Nazis did appropriate him. I mean, Hitler he was, was acquainted, at least, with his sister and went to his sister's funeral and there's photographs of him with the sister. So Kaufman himself had to sort of push Nietzsche more to the left in order to make him acceptable again, I think, to the culture, to the academy. What did he mean by Nietzsche foreseeing these things and understanding these urges? I mean... Well, so many things, really. I mean, Freud is uh, reported to have said that Nietzsche knew himself more than any man ever understood themselves. And I think um, Nietzsche's power partly lies not only in, in his historical sense, which he gets from philology, but also in his introspective power. He sort of um, uncovered all the sort of uh, lies that people tell themselves. People are sort of inculcated in and believe in. And he sort of just uncovers them and says, no, that's... You know, you can see he gives often historical motives for people believing certain things about themselves, which he sort of just burns away. And it leaves the reader in a raw state of sort of understanding themselves and understanding their place in history in this um, barren, barren type way in a way, but I mean, in a truthful way, at least if you accept his thought. One thing that Jordan Peterson is, is said about Nietzsche, and Peterson's a huge fan of Nietzsche, is that and he's also a big fan of Jung, and he's sort of brought me brought to my attention that Jung was an avid reader of Nietzsche. Jung's got an essay called Wotan on Wotan, and that's really about Nietzsche more than anything else. And um, in that essay, I mean, Jung, Jung sort of connects Nietzsche to, to the Second World War, at least, saying that there's this um, Wotan archetype, this warrior king archetype, and that's really represented by mm. Nietzsche's Dionysus. He says, why, why did Nietzsche not call a Dionysus Wotan? Well, that was because of Nietzsche's um, you know, classical upbringing, classical education with the Greeks. But really, Jung, Jung thinks it should have been Wotan. And you get that in the German nationalism that was emerging, this kind of um, you know, sort of Western male warrior type, um, right. which was partly responsible for the war. So that was an underlying, well, for Jung at least, as I understand it, and I'm not an expert in Jung, but um, there was this, un, you know, the archetypes always underlie our consciousness. And there was, there was this one which came to the fore in the 20th century, and it was kind of um, triggered, as it were, by Nietzsche. And then it just grew and grew until you get these, these horrific wars, which uh, were the result thereof. So, yeah, Nietzsche, uh, Jung was very, very much um, interested in Nietzsche. And I, I definitely I want to ask more about this whole notion of why Nietzsche is referred to as sort of one of the first psychologists, with you, which you alluded to with the Freud comment. But I want to build this idea out first, where we're talking about how he predicted what was going to happen in the 20th century. Peterson has said that he predicted, and this is the whole idea that God is dead, right? That he talked about, mm -hmm. you know, predicted the death of religion and didn't necessarily mean that is a good thing, <laughs> but talked about the aftermath of that. And what that would mean that 100 million people would be killed in the 20th century. And Peterson's take is that he was referring specifically to Marxism. Do you think that's a fair characterization? No, because Marx was contemporary of Nietzsche's and um, Nietzsche didn't know of Marx and vice versa. So specifically Marxism, that can't be true. But I think he said that, but maybe he knew of socialism. Okay. So would that be possible? Yeah, yeah, because Nietzsche's critical of socialism. Right. Okay, when Nietzsche writes, you know, God is dead in a few places in his works, 
uh, what he means is that um, the belief in God is intellectually dead. In other words, thinkers will no longer believe in the Judeo-Christian God, at least. But more than that, it means that it really talk, it symbolizes the fact that if you do not believe in the Christian God, you have no right to believe in Christian morality. And by Christian morality, he really meant Western morality, because for almost 2,000 years, Christianity has sort of ingrained itself in Western culture and become the dominant dominant uh, uh, ethical stance, even when people think they're not Christian. So, and the thing that um, Nietzsche emphasized, especially in his later works like Beyond Good and Evil, is equality, um, that all are equal under the eyes of God. And this is opposed to what he calls master morality, uh, which is not a, not an egalitarian view at all. In fact, it's a sort of self-glorification of masters, or lords, or um, aristocratic races in the past, like epitome being the Romans, really. And when once one acknowledges that God is dead, one has to acknowledge the fact then that this um, all are equal under the eyes of God ethos is also dead. And this is something that socialism doesn't do. So what happened historically when with this um, death of God is that Christianity sort of transformed into a different ideology, which ostensibly said, yes, we, we are atheists, we don't believe in God, as Marx did and, and socialists do. Um, but nonetheless, they carried on the whole Christian enterprise, or the slave, what he calls a slave moral enterprise, of saying that everyone you know, is equal and um, certain values such as pity, compassion, the helping hand, friendliness and so on are the greatest virtues. Whereas the point is that that view, even if you subjectively agree with it, and objectively, without God, it can't objectively be substantiated. And and Bertrand Russell, by the way, said said the same thing more or less. You know, he said um, Marx was the uh, Messiah, and the proletariat were the elect. You know, <laughs> and capitalists were the, right. the evil ones who will be punished. You know, come Armageddon and so on. It's not just Nietzsche who made this um, equivalence. So this is really Nietzsche's problem with socialism generally. It's the fact that it really is Christianity in disguise. That's why he's against it. Because he sees the complete, I mean, this is, you know, from his perspective, he sees that, you know, that atheism ultimately will lead to a rejection of socialism as well, even though socialism is generally, generally calls itself atheistic. And this is why Nietzsche is much more atheist in that sense than people like Richard Dawkins, because he still maintains what Nietzsche considers to be a Christian ethos, even though he's unaware of it. Right. I was about to ask you that because... Dawkins, people have made this argument to Dawkins and Sam Harris. Peterson made this argument recently to Sam Harris and, and have others like conservative commentators like what's his name? Ben Shapiro, you know, who's a, a Jewish conservative guy. And he said, you know, you can call yourself an atheist, Sam, but what you like is Western morality. And especially Harris has a very scientific materialist objective notion of truth. He said it's it's all predicated on Judeo-Christian. Yeah. Morality and it drove him nuts. He absolutely kind of rejects that. So, are, do you take that view that it is very much predicated on Judeo-Christian? Um, I actually had my, a, a little debate with Sam Harris a few years ago online. I mean, written form. Oh, did you? Gap because Sam Harris won't accept Hume's ism of that either. And yeah, I think I think um, really all the four horsemen of the uh, you know the four new atheists as they were known. Harris, Dawkins, uh, Dennett, and Christopher Hitchens, whom I actually met in person, chatted with in the hotel bar once. I bet he was a very interesting guy to talk to over a drink. Yeah, no, funnily enough, he had just come from a big debate about whether Catholicism was good for the world, and he was um, on the side with uh, Stephen Fry against uh, 
bishop, an African bishop, I think, and um, conservative lady. Brilliant musician. guy. Um, he had a way with words, for sure. Yeah, no, and also he was he was exact. You know, he was identical to his sort of uh, TV persona in his pub as well. Constantly <laughs> funny. skis and so on. This was, this was a year or two before he died of uh, throat cancer. But right. also his son was there with him. He was um, worked for a think tank. But anyway, Harris, yeah. No, I, I think all of those four, they were, they basically hadn't. I'm sure Hitchens had read Nietzsche, and I'm sure Harris has, but they, they just can't accept it, really. So, yeah, no, I do I do see their, them ultimately as, as continuing on Chris, Christian ethos, even though they were known as, as new atheists. I, didn't think, I don't think they went went far enough. But going going that far, I mean, it really is a dangerous thing because it really um, alienates you from society because, as I say, this, this um, ethos, this ethic, has completely ingrained itself within our Western culture. Mm-hmm. And not in, in Western culture, of course, it's spread around the world, so... So I mean Nietzsche's Nietzsche's words are very dangerous, really, and to fully grasp them, fully um, abide by them, if one so chooses, is uh, make one many friends. So just to sort of clarify, for example, like the modern notion of human rights, which is very much you know an Enlightenment notion, mm. the whole idea that everyone, and that does come from the idea of God. I know the American founders are very much, mm. at least they believe they had inalienable rights because it was endowed, you know, given. into that by their creator. Right. But that whole notion, even if atheists hold it, it's this idea that everyone is equal. So you're saying that is traceable back to this idea of the Judeo-Christian God, that kind of we're all God's children. And in that sense, we're all equal. Is it something along those lines or am I missing something? Yeah, I mean, at least in the West, I mean, there are other religions as well, which take equality to be um, a virtue, not just Christianity. But, you know, from a Western point of view, that seems to be the origin. I mean, you don't get it if you look at other cultures, Nietzsche, for example, in the Beyond Good and Evil and the genealogy, he talks about like Viking culture, going back to Wotan again, and how um had a completely different uh, stance with regard to values. I mean, I, re- I remember I was reading a, a Viking saga once from Iceland, and it was about this uh, Viking king who uh, had a son, but he was he was weakly and um, he was a bit of a liar. So he killed him, but it was fine because he had another son who was stronger after that. <laughs> you read that and you think, what? <laughs> what am I thinking allowed that to happen? But you have to realize... I, th- I think because we're so used to the ethic we have today around us, we think, well, it must have always been more or less like this. It really wasn't. I mean, also think about slavery. I mean, the Romans had slaves, the Greeks had slaves. We had slaves until only a few hundred years ago. And um, not just, you know, not just the European, of course, you know, all most races had slaves. Again, now we, you know, this is a sort of a reprehensible thing to have, but nonetheless, it was quite common before and it was justified by different means and whatever. So, so yeah, you look around the world and you, you look around back in time and you see different, completely different cultures, different ethics. And you can see, you can basically interpret that in two ways. Either you can say, well, you know, it's all relative, different cultures have different values and we have our own values, but they're, therefore they're not absolute. Or you can believe in progress and you can say, well, you know, in the past we were wrong and different cultures are wrong about their values. And we are progressing to a more civilized kind of a moral position. But if you, and I think that's what most people in the West believe, you know, we're getting more and more moral. But again, here, the logical, although this sounds cold and harsh, the logical issue here is if you believe that, then you believe that there is an objective moral standard to which we are progressing. But again, if you, how, what is the, why would someone believe in that moral standard that exists objectively? You know, in other words, outside of all cultures and um, outside of time. If you believe that, you would have to take quite a s- severe Platonist position by believing in these um, 
forms, not only forms or sort of their non-temporal ideas, but also normative forms, forms that, that you think uh, we should follow, like, I mean, Plato's form of the good, which historically became associated through thinkers like Augustine with the Christian God, you see. So again, if you really accept that God is dead, then that standard, which we used to abide by, no longer exists, which means that if you believe that we are progressing morally, you're going to have to give very good reasons for that position, very good metaphysical reasons, which certainly are not easy. I think most atheists, for example, would certainly reject the fact that there exists some objective, um, eternal form of the good. So that's where, that's part of where um, Nietzsche's position takes you. You know, it makes you realize that things are not as simple as saying simply, you know, in the past we were less moral than we are today. Very, very, very complicated, really. Okay, let me throw out an idea and you can tell me what Nietzsche's philosophy sort of would articulate in relation to this or, or what you think personally. Okay. So... One thing we could say, and this will be a little bit of a mix, what I know of Western philosophy, but I'm going to base it more on, you know, Buddhism as well. Buddhism certainly posits that, you know, life is suffering, right? And there sort of seem to be some parallels where here in, in the West, and I'm getting outside of my normal territory a bit, but Schopenhauer and some of the existentialists, even Dostoevsky and other people who are existentialists seem to sort of talk about this, right? So... What can I know about life that is real? Life is pain. You know, life is suffering. That's an inevitable part of life. Mm. So one way to measure that might be something like, well, what would give meaning to my life on a personal level, right? It would be lessening the suffering of others, right? Or, or if we were to measure it collectively, it would be, well, how would we measure if there's progress? And we could say, is there less suffering today than there was, you know, thousand years ago or 2000 years ago. And undoubtedly that invites lots of methodological problems, but there are obviously some pretty easy way to quantify that in terms of life expectancy, you know, infectious diseases, all these other kind of things. And that's not to say there are other, say, psychological problems that might be, which I bet are undoubtedly worse under modernity than they were in the past, if you were living, especially in a tribal society. But might that be some more reasonable or, or might not that be not a, a more reasonable, but a reasonable metric by which to evaluate progress? What do you suspect Nietzsche might say to that or what would you say to that? Well, Nietzsche himself suffered all his life, you know, more than most people. He was um, myopic at an early age, you know, very bad eyesight, suffered intense headaches, migraines. His father died when he was five of a softening of the brain, as it was recorded. And throughout his life, I mean, he had to give up his post as professor of philology at Basel University um, because of his, you know, his extreme um, medical issues such as headaches and nausea. And um, he, was, he was almost blind. And he did. He retired early. And that's when he, after that he wrote his greatest thing. So it's quite, kind of ironic in a way that he argues against uh, this value of suffering, even though he, he suffered. Maybe that was his way of overcoming mm. it you know, by saying actually it was bad. That's the first thing I should say. Can you measure progress by the, basically, if I understand you correctly, you're saying, can you measure progress by the lessening of suffering yes. over years? Well, Nietzsche's, Nietzsche, in response, in contradistinction to Schopenhauer, who um, spoke of, you know, he was much influenced by the Eastern religions, Buddhism and so on. In response to that, he said, Nietzsche, Nietzsche argued that even our even impression that suffering is bad is not a natural disposition. Rather, it's historically inculcated. So why should we, what 
why should we believe that suffering is a bad thing? I mean, he, he famously says, you know, what doesn't kill one makes one stronger. So in other words, suffering leads to strengthening. Um, in our evolutionary history, if it wasn't for suffering through obstacles and whatever, we would not have evolved to the complex organisms we are today. So sufferings and obstacles and pain is very important for the continuing pro evolutionary progress, at least, of mankind. Now, the next question then becomes, okay, but isn't Nietzsche preferring sort of um, evolutionary progress in terms of complexification over the progress of pleasure, basically, or non-pain? Well, yes, he is. And that's because that's his subjective preference. So, so I see it like this. With the death of God, we have the death of all objective morality. That can lead one in into an existential abyss when one doesn't, therefore, thinks, well, everything's pointless and why should I bother? And that can lead to depression and whatnot, as it did in the 20th century. But he himself says, listen, therefore, there are only subjective values. And my own, Nietzsche's own subjective preferences were for the ubermensch, you know, for the overman, which is very debatable as to what he meant by that. But in, in many books, he talks about it being a sort of a next stage of evolution. In other works, he says mankind is a finality. So it's, he sort of seems to change his mind on it, and he leaves it almost purposefully vague. But nonetheless, he uh, certainly talks, I mean, he criticizes Christianity for degenerating mankind in evolutionary sense. certainly does that, in, for example, Beyond Good and Evil's section 62. So from his subjective point of view, if you valued the elimination of suffering, it would lead to a degeneration of mankind. And that's why he doesn't see that as progress at all. And also, I mean, from a more kind of analytic, metaphysical, uh, meta-ethical point of view, you could say um, the proposition suffering is bad or suffering is wrong is, again, um, impossible to prove in any way. It can't be empirically proved by verification. It can't, it's not logically true either. So therefore, it's, uh, you know, if you believe it, you're going to have to give very good reasons, metaphysical reasons as to why it's the case. It's not logically true from this kind of evolutionary perspective. No, because I don't think you can get logical truths from evolution, really, generally. Although I've never thought about that, really. But uh, I can't see mm. very good. I mean, evolutionary truths are difficult anyway, because you can't go back in time to, to check them in any way. You know, that's why a lot of evolutionary psychology is very speculative. Because, you know, well, it might be true, but it might not be. And it's very hard to prove, prove it one way or the other. I mean, my own view on evolution is, of course, that it's true, but I don't think um, I don't think it's anywhere near complete. So why? Because it doesn't take into account mental causation. So the fact that um, our thoughts, our desires, have an effect upon other thoughts and desires and, and our body, this seems to be necessitated by evolution because otherwise why would mentality evolve in the first place as something Karl Popper argues? You know, if mentality had no power upon our bodies, Ambitions, say, have no effect whatsoever upon our actions. Why do we have mentality at all? It seems completely superfluous. And not only humans, but also a lot of other animals. Why didn't it um, disappear as uh, something which was superfluous? So um, Karl Popper argues that um, we have to believe in mental causation uh, for evolutionary reasons. Epiphenomenalism is a sort of anti-evolutionary theory. Epiphenomenalism meaning that thoughts and desires and all mental uh, states are simply... Um, uh, like steam coming off a steam engine without any power whatsoever. So if evolutionary theory leads to the potency of mental states, we have to sort of uh, circle back with that and say, well, therefore, there's a force in nature, in other words, mentality, that, must have, that surely must have had an effect upon the evolution of species. I mean, that's partly, you partly see that in terms of sexual selection, but much more so than that, something that Thomas Nagel has argued recently in a book recently, Mind and Cosmos, I think it was called a few years ago, 
So I'm very skeptical about any any finality in evolutionary theory today. Of course, not to say that therefore God did it. You know, just because you don't believe in evolution right. as it stands today, of course, doesn't mean that therefore Christian God made the, each animal as it is. And I mean, that's even more absurd, of course. But it just means that um, we should be a bit uh, wary of taking too many facts from these theories. Another example of that is that fact that epigenetics, which was um, you know from Waddington, inspired by Whitehead, that's become a sort of um, a science today, and you know, it's studied in the last 15 years or so. But for 100 years almost, it was that kind of thinking was deemed as heresy in the scientific community. You know that, in other words, one's environment has an effect upon the expression of one's genes or the genes. Of genes, genes, yeah. Well, just to back up a sec, though, I mean, there's a lot more we know about the brain, you know, in the last few decades. And we can talk about the mind being different than the brain and knowing things about the brain, not totally explaining consciousness. And I'm, I'm totally with you on that point. But before we, we veer off there, I mean, I would say that a lot of what we know onto the br- about the brain, it seems like is explained in terms of evolution very, very clearly in terms of the reptilian brain, right? Being sort of the beginning sort of primal brain and then the prefrontal cortex being only what developed much, much mm-hmm. later and speaking to those, you know, higher order. I mean, I'm, I'm getting very much outside of my field of expertise here, but I, I just, I've listened to enough and read enough to see where I get the impression that it seems like there is actually a fair amount we know about neuroscience and evolutionary psychology that is explained by evolution, or do you take issue with that and why? No, I accept that in part. I mean, you know, we are progressing with neuroscience, of course, and uh, but the problem still remains then. I mean, for a start, there are sort of strange anomalies like um, the fact that there exist people without brains or with a very thin film of brain around their skull. In other words, no reptilian brain or whatever who operate completely normally. There's a case in Sheffield University, for example, in the 70s, 80s, a student with a high IQ and normal social skills who had no brain. <laughs> so He had, to clarify, he had no reptilian part of his brain. So there are, there are anomalies um, which can't be explained like that. But ultimately, the issue with mental causation, no matter how much we understand about the brain, still remains because you can explain physically, you know, how the brain has evolved and uh, how uh, certain neurons and synapses and neurotransmitters and dendrites and whatever cause muscle movement and whatnot. But we still have no idea how the brain um, relates to the mind, really. I mean, we, we know that there are correlates, neural correlates of consciousness, but even those are not established fully well. There's a lot of uh, debate about that, and we don't even understand how anesthetic, general anesthetics work. This is a strange thing. You know, like we know they work, so we can use them in the medicine, but we don't understand. If we knew how they work, then we would understand the neural correlates of consciousness perfectly, it seems, but we don't. But even if we did understand perfectly, you know, that the neural correlates of consciousness, so that, let's say, um, melancholy relates to this activity in the brain, happiness, this, this aspect, and so on, and that still would not explain why we had consciousness because why would why would it not be sufficient for us simply to have brains and to receive input from our senses which would then be processed like in a computer and then um, released as output in our behavior there's in that worldview physicalist worldview there's absolutely no reason for mentality existing at all but nonetheless we know and arguably as you know one thing i think Descartes was right about we know we know for sure that consciousness does exist so with that in mind you think well what, what why does it exist then if it doesn't seem to be uh, needed what that indicates to me is that our physicalist picture in terms of evolution in the brain and uh, generally the laws of physics and whatever is incomplete it needs to be we need to add to it um, a whole new paradigm 
mentality. So, um, so yeah, so despite the fact that neuroscience has evolved, it's completely insufficient. And, and of course, most just about every neuroscientist will admit that this hard, so-called hard problem of consciousness exists. And many, many people are working on, you know, how to address that. But no one well, I've heard some other people very much, not not just neuroscientists, but even other philosophers of mine, really dismiss the hard problem of consciousness. And you mentioned Thomas Nagel earlier. Quite positive it was Thomas Nagel when he was on Sam Harris's podcast, which was just a few months ago. I don't know if you caught that. But, but Harris asked, and Harris has had David Chalmers on before, and Chalmers, who those in the audience are familiar, is a philosopher of mine who sort of developed this hard problem of consciousness, which I'll, uh, I'll let Peter explain. But, you know, I've heard many people, including Thomas Nagel, take issue with the, the so-called hard problem of consciousness. So I'm not sure. I don't get the sense there's a consensus there around. But certainly not. I mean, well, I'm surprised Thomas Nagel would take issue with it, considering he wrote famously, you know, what does it like to be a bat, which basically is, you know, talks about that problem before Chalmers spoke about it. Chalmers came out with, coined it, the hard problem of consciousness in 1996. But I mean, it, it's basically existed. Galen Strawson's written, written an article about the fact that it has existed in the modern, since Descartes, really. I mean, um, Levine talks it, to, calls it the explanatory gap in the 70s. And, uh, yeah, it's got, no, you know, Leibniz's mill, essentially. This is the hard problem of consciousness, even. But uh, I'll find the episode for you, and, and maybe I'm wrong. I know it was a. Uh, well, I mean, he, he does change his mind, Thomas Nagel, so, you know, it's possible, but um, it surprises me that he would say that. Okay. Uh, oh, no, 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 no. I know I, who it was. I was wrong. I'm looking it up right now. It wasn't Thomas Nagel, it was Thomas Metzinger. All oh, right, yeah. Well, Metzinger. Do you know Metzinger? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, well, Metzinger is a notorious materialist, so that doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> Okay, um, got you. Okay, there are people who dismiss it. Daniel Dennett is another one. Um, I don't. I think Sam Harris, though, he's quite sympathetic to it. He is, which is interesting because he's normally a. In many ways, he seems to be a scientific materialist. But you know, Harris, being someone who's very into Eastern religion and meditation, and a proponent of the value of psychedelics, I think Harris is really an exception to kind mm. of normally most people in that school of thought who believe in kind of objective scientific truth in that way. He, he believes that consciousness is actually far more mysterious than and can't be explained than some of those other thinkers you mentioned. Well, I, th I, th I think that variety of responses actually just sort of indicates the nature of the problem, that it's certainly a problem. And if you're going to, even if you're going to call, not, if you're going to say that it's not a problem, I mean, that very hard to say that. In the 20th century, generally, the problem in different guys was dismissed because, well, a number of reasons, but essentially it doesn't accord with the general scientific worldview because you can't, um, as it were, objectively see others' consciousness. You can only see your own. And thus, as a result, I mean, there's a big history about this, but, but first of all, there were philosophers known as eliminativists who uh, rejected the existence of consciousness altogether, strangely. Paul and Patricia Churchland are most famous for that today, probably. In much of the 20th century, there was this um, philosophy called logical behaviorism, which also dismissed the existence of consciousness. So like if you said the word happy, what it really meant was smiling and jumping and laughing. And that's it. And that was behavior. And there was nothing behind that. It wasn't as if happiness caused that behavior. It just didn't exist. But that led to so many logical paradoxes that it's pretty much been um, dismissed today. And there's a view of functionalism, which sort of rose with computer science, which is all kind of dismisses it. But I think the general consensus, though, is that consciousness does exist. Of course, the question then is, what do you mean by consciousness? What are we talking about that? Or sentience, I prefer the word sentience. And then the problem 
the hard problem of consciousness really is this, that happen states, let's say, such as pain, curiosity, melancholy, how, although they are, we know that they are related to brain states because of brain damage, drugs, so on, you know, brain scan, scans and whatnot, although we know that they're correlated to the brain, how do they correlate to the brain? Are they um, products of the brain? Do they emerge from the brain? That's known as emergentism. That's got a lot of problems, for example, mental causation. Are they identical to the brain, known as psychoneural identity theory? Well, that was common in the 1950s, but that's got a lot of problems, such as multiple realization. You know, for example, hunger could be identical to Putnam. Spoke about this, that hunger in a human could be identical to certain brain activity. But then if it is identical to that, it would mean that it could not exist in non-human forms, like in an octopus, Putnam says. Presuming that octopuses can feel hunger, which is more plausible than not, we realize that, well, hunger, then the, the neural correlates of hunger must be more than simply the human correlates. It must have cephalopodic correlates as well, which means that they can't be identical, you know. And a number of other problems also are ultimately the problem that mental causation occurs with identity theory, as Bob talks about. And so there, there are, and then, you know, there are other, other theories as well. Um, but they all end up in, none of them are perfect. All of them have got problems. And I certainly don't know the answer to this, but I know, I, I think I know what can't be right. <laughs> and I, I think that dismissing the hard problem of consciousness is, is, is wrong because it's too, too dogmatic. It sort of shows, it sort of indicates that you think you know um, what consciousness is and you know what matter is. I mean, I don't even think we know what matter is. In fact, we don't. We, there's something called Hempel's dilemma, which is this, that it's a criticism in a way of physicalism because um, you've got two horns of this dilemma, which is one, by the physical, we, we mean that which current science understands as physical, like mass and charge and whatever. But that can't be right because physics is constantly developing and we know that uh, relativity theory and quantum theory don't cohere very nicely. So we know that you know, there's going to be a sort of a, um, a new science which will hopefully make these cohere in the future. So we shouldn't say that by the physical, we understand what current science means. That was almost definitely wrong. So does by the physical mean that which an ideal future science um, or future physics will show to be physical? Um, is that what physicalism means? The problem with that is, of course, that we don't know what it will show at all. We've got no idea. Therefore, you know, by talking about the physical in terms of an ideal state of physics, is that we don't really know what we're talking about at all. Um, moreover, future physics could include mental attributes as part of a matter, which then would sort of go against the whole notion of phys physicalism, not being dualist in with. So there's a lot of problems with what we understand by matter. There's a lot of problems with what we understand by sentience. Everyone's got a different view. And thus, you know, the problem is open. The relationship is open. And uh, that's why I think it is a problem. It certainly is a problem. I wouldn't dismiss it. Okay. Now, I'm curious, Peter, I want to I wanna ask you about psychedelics because I know you've written about psychedelics and you've spoken on a lot of different psychedelic podcasts mm -hmm. and conferences. And so I'm curious, and this can just be obviously personal subjective experience here and totally acknowledging if you feel like something is more of an instinct or a, a hunch than uh, a logical proof, that's fine. But <laughs> I'd love to know what has your personal experience with psychedelics, how has that shaped your view on the understanding of consciousness? I think the first thing it, it did, I took it quite late, you know. When did you first do uh, it? And uh, what kind of psychedelics? 20s, I'd say, you know, about 10 years but um, so it's so relatively late, I think. The first thing it does, I mean, is it makes one realize 
how, how, how much more powerful the mind is than one formerly believed. A lot of people think that when one takes psychedelics, one sees a kind of kaleidoscopic uh, you know, tunnel of colors or something like this. And, you know, that's, one can see that, but that's just a minor aspect of it. You know, it's so much more, so many interesting things, like um, increasing the number of feelings one can have. You know, it seems like one can have uh, more more colours you know, than exist than one believed in before. You know, also just you know ineffable. As William James says, ineffable experiences. You can't simply describe the feelings of uh, unity and um, feelings of complete isolation. Anyway, the point is that it, for a start, then it made me, even though I was ten years ago, I was interested in philosophy mind a bit, that quite a lot. But it certainly increased that, you know, because you know when you have this experience, you think, well, well, what explains that? <laughs> how, how does that make sense of, of anything? So it immediately makes one realize that reality, which includes the mental, is much grander, much larger, much more epic than one could ever imagine, because it far transcends imagination. That's the first effect it had upon me. So after having these experiences with um, psilocybin, I started the I looked into the literature on it, and there's you know, some, some interesting stuff from William James. I mean, William James partly made me take it in the first place. Walters Huxley, the famous one, you know, Doors of Perception and so on. But there's not that much philosophy on it, not, hardly any, actually. There, there's some philosophy of mystical states, and you know, the question then is, can you identify the psychedelic state with the mystical states? You know, another philosophical question. But anyway, there's relatively little written about it. So then um, I thought, okay, well, I'll... I'll start, um, you know, I'll start the ball rolling in a way. I mean, I wasn't the first really, but I thought I'd contribute to that. And um, that's what that's what led to my book, Numenautics, a few years ago. It's got a number of essays on psychedelic consciousness, and then I looked into, you know, how Nietzsche took a lot of psych- psychoactive compounds like chloral, for example, and opium and whatnot. And, and it just opened up my... Uh, kind of psychoactive substances he was taking? Yeah, no, yeah. chloral. I mean, he, like I, I said, he was suffering that. a lot from physical ailments, and he took a lot of stuff. I mean, he took a lot of opium, and in, in a letter to Lou Salome and Paul Ray, he said in largely high doses, dangerously high doses, large doses, one, one hallucinates from opium, you know, as Thomas De Quincey, for example, wrote about. And he was taking uh, potassium bromide, I think, and Javanese narcotic, his sister and mother speaks about, and... And a friend of his actually wrote um, wrote a report saying that Nietzsche had this going into pharmacies and self-prescribing whatever drugs he felt like because he was a doctor. And that was enough proof to the pharmacist to let him have whatever he wanted. Of course, they never asked him. The PhD and in, in like Thomas Greek languages and philosophy. He was like you know, self-prescribing all the time. But the main his main drug of choice became chloral because I think he... Well, it helped him sleep, he wrote. But um, in large doses, chloral can be very hallucinogenic, and it's actually, you know, quite a toxic drug now. People don't take it. And, I mean, like uh, Oliver Sacks in, in, in uh, his book Hallucinations, one of his last books, if not the last book, he wrote about um, being becoming addicted to chloral and uh, seeing all of these, uh, you know, sort of um, tea turning purple and all these kind of uh, alien heads, insectoid heads, or elephant-like heads in, on the bus, you know, things like this. So, so we know that um, chloral is hallucinogenic. There's even a report of um, von Schoenhofer, one of the, um, Nietzsche's aristocratic lady friends, coming to see him in Sils Maria in Switzerland and uh, knocking on the door. And eventually, sort of, he opens the door and he's sort of pale, and he says all these flowers are sort of rolling around his body. <laughs> so, so um, yeah. Now, there's the whole history there, the whole sort of hidden history of Nietzsche's um, drug drug use, um, which explains. I mean, his mother and sister believed that his drug use was mostly responsible for his decline into 
madness. And absolutely, I, I believe that, you know, well, there's a, a combined, there seems to be combined factors here. You know, he was, he was inherited, it seems, something from his father. Like I said, he died of brain softening. He possibly got syphilis when he was a young man, either at war or in a brothel. And then as a result of these of this, he, he was taking a hell of a lot of drugs, you know, in strange combinations and high doses. And this probably uh, and certainly led to addiction and made his condition worse, I should say, until eventually he just sort of completely ruined his brain. And for the last 10 years of his life, from 1889 to, ni- to 1900, he, he, was, he was just a vegetable, a living vegetable, uh, who his um, mother and sister looked after. To hear more about Peter's own personal psychedelic experience, his views on how that shaped his uh, perspective on consciousness in the mind as a philosopher of mind, head on over to patreon.com slash hacking the self. And Peter and I talk more about psychedelics and philosophy of mind, as well as we talk about Nietzsche in more depth as well. Not only some of the ideas of Nietzsche, but how Nietzsche's ideas can give us an interesting perspective and perhaps insight into some of the current cultural and political battles that are going on right now in the West, particularly in the U.S. and Canada on university campuses and just in the larger culture in general. And all of that is bonus content that is available to Patreon subscribers. You can access that for simply $2 a month. That is 50 cents an episode and would just appreciate your support as well doing this because I want to make this show sustainable and I don't want to have to resort to advertising money, which might corrupt the content of this show and interfere with our willingness to talk about difficult topics, which I do not want. So would appreciate your support on Patreon. And if you're not ready to go there yet today, I thank you anyways for listening. And there are many ways that you can support the show also by going to iTunes or Google Music or Stitcher and leaving a review. That's a huge help just sharing the conversation on your social media platforms or with your friends and family. And thank you very much for your interests. Perhaps I will see some of you on Patreon where we continue this conversation. And to the rest of you, have a great day. This episode has ended, but head over to hackingtheself.org to access all of the resources and links mentioned in today's show, as well as bonus content available exclusively to the show supporters on patreon.com. That's patreon.com slash hackingtheself. Thank you for listening to Hacking the Self, optimizing physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality.